Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of Sam Splaining Science. I'm Sam, I'm your host. I'll be Sam Splaining the Science. Today, we are talking about Alzheimer's disease. Let's get into it. Hi, everybody. How are ya? I hope you're doing well. Today is the last episode of our spring semester, what I've been calling the second 12-week block of episodes of the year. So we're halfway through the year. That's nuts. Um, (laughs) But we'll be back. We're going to take one week off, and then we'll be back the following week to start our summer school block. So I'm looking forward to it. I have some interesting topics on the horizon that I want to talk about, um, including outer space. But if you have any suggestions for topics or any questions that you want answered or Sam Splained, uh, you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter at Sam Splaining Sci, or you can submit your questions anonymously at samsplainingscience.com slash ask. Okay. So for today's episode, as I said, we're going to talk about Alzheimer's disease um, because June is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. June is also, of course, Pride Month, so happy Pride to all my beautiful friends in the LGBTQ plus community. I hope you're all having a wonderful month with tons of celebration and just all the good things. Um... But in addition to Pride, June is also Alzheimer's Awareness Month, so I thought for this episode we can talk about Alzheimer's. So let's get into the questions for today's episode. Today we have three questions. The first two are actually the same question, but just taken from like a different context. So the first question is, what is Alzheimer's disease? But for this first question, we're going to take about it we're going to talk about it in context of like in the world, like what is the prevalence of Alzheimer's? Who does it affect? What's the risks of developing Alzheimer's? All those things. Um, And then the second question is also what is Alzheimer's disease, but it's a much more neurobiological approach to understanding what the disease is. And then the third question is, do we have a cure for Alzheimer's. We're going to walk through uh, clinical trial results uh, from last year and this that were just published this year uh, to kind of get an understanding of where we're at in terms of how good are we at curing Alzheimer's disease. Spoiler alert, the answer is we're not that good. <laughs> um, so let's get into the question. So question one, as I mentioned, is what is Alzheimer's disease in like a global general context? Um, so Alzheimer's disease or AD or Alzheimer's, however, um, it was first discovered by Dr. Aloy Alzheimer. I don't think I'm pronouncing the first name right. I'm very sorry. Um, so Dr. Alzheimer looked at brains of dementia patients after they had passed away and was able to characterize some of the key components of the disease in the brains of people who had this type of dementia. Um, And these key components are still used for diagnosis today. Um, And we'll get into sort of the neurobiology of those components in question two. Um, 
But the point of this question is to give some context about AD and society and sort of summarize what we know about who's at risk for AD and things like that. So I'm getting this information from the review article linked in the episode description by Dr. Deter and Dr. Dixon. Um, so if you want to read it and scope it out for yourselves, learn more, go right ahead. Um, but dementia affects more than 47 million people in the world. And anywhere between 60 and 80% of dementia case- cases are related to Alzheimer's disease. Um, there are other types of dementia, um, like Lewy body dementia or Parkinson's disease with dementia, um, but a majority of dementia cases are related to Alzheimer's disease. Aging is the strongest risk factor for AD. So 10% of individuals over the age of 65 years and 40% of people over the age of 80 are affected by Alzheimer's. So in the U.S., we have this baby boomer generation that's getting older. As our population across the globe gets older, uh, we're going to see more and more cases of AD. So it is going to become a serious um, clinical issue within the next few decades. So a lot of money, a lot of research is being poured into Alzheimer's disease because we understand that it's going to be a problem in the future. Some, a little bit of background, I guess, or just some uh, general information about some genes that are tied to Alzheimer's disease, meaning that if you carry these genes, if you have these genes, you may be predisposed or more likely to develop Alzheimer's. So a couple of different genes, um, if there are mutations in the genes, like for the amyloid precursor protein, or presenilin one or two genes, uh, these genes can be passed down or inherited within families. And those mutations can lead to familial AD, uh, which makes up less than 1% of Alzheimer's disease cases, so pretty rare. Um, but for familial AD, the age of onset can be as early as 20 years old, with an average age of onset of about 46 years old. So very rare type of AD, um, but it is directly linked to this genetic mutation. Another gene that is tied to AD is the apolipoprotein E gene or the APOE gene. Um, So in our genome, we have in our DNA, we have two copies of like chromosomes for each gene, right? One we get from the egg and one one we get from the sperm at fertilization. So if one of those, if one of the two copies that we have for the APOE gene is a certain polymorphism, they call it, but basically like a certain type, a certain variant called APOE4, the odds ratio of developing Alzheimer's disease is three to one compared to someone who does not have that polymorphism. If both copies of the gene are this polymorphism, then the odds of developing Alzheimer's disease is 12 to 1. 
So clearly there is some link between the APOE gene and the predisposal or the likelihood for developing Alzheimer's. So those are just some sort of genetic examples of how genes can play a role in the risk of developing Alzheimer's, but there are also some studies that suggest that, for example, people who have like high blood pressure or other um, like heart disease may be at a higher risk for developing Alzheimer's as well. Um, it's really not clear-cut, very understood. This, if you do this, or if you have this, or whatever, you're going to get Alzheimer's. It's still sort of under investigation, of course, as many things are in science. Um, so let's now talk about the typical progression of Alzheimer's disease. Normally when older people start to notice that they are having memory issues, it's either the patient themselves that starts noticing or the people around the patient, the patient that start noticing um, that things are happening, things are changing, right? Either the memory is getting worse, oh, I forget where I put my keys, or oh, he keeps repeating the same story over and over to me. Or, oh, I'm having issues with word recall. Like, I'm trying to remember a word and I can't get it and it keeps happening. And um, those types of, of symptoms, people will go to the doctor, the neurologist, and, and the neurologist will say, okay, like, let's do some cognitive testing. And there's a bunch of different cognitive tests that they can do to test their executive function, to test their memory function, um, things like that. Um, but usually... In typical Alzheimer's, the first noticeable symptoms of the patient are with memory. Um, and those things can be small, like I said, like forgetting where the keys are. Um, but they can get worse with time. And I'm sure if you haven't had it impact you directly, I'm sure you've heard stories about people who, you know, forget the names of their own children, forget the names of their spouse for 50 years, you know, it's, it's very um, heartbreaking and devastating. Um, but the disease can also progress not just in terms of severity of memory impairment, but also can progress to become issues with language, language and communication, um, and can also have issues with motor functions, issue with executive function, decision-making, um, so that by the end of life, patients typically need full-time, round-the-clock care just to make sure that they're able to take care of themselves, right? They're able, they remember to eat, they remember to shower, you know, they remember to do all the things that keep them going, um, but that they also aren't going to hurt themselves. You know, they're not going to forget to turn off the stove, they're not going to fall and hurt themselves if they have motor issues. Um, so it, it does become a very debilitating disease by the end of its progression. Um, the review paper mentions also the personal toll that Alzheimer's disease has on the patient's families, um, as well as a financial toll that it has on society. The paper mentions that as of 2018, the cost of Alzheimer's surpasses $1 trillion annually worldwide. So there's just a lot of implications for this disease. I mean, I don't really, respectfully, I don't really think about the financial toll. I feel like that's 
when I think about Alzheimer's disease, that's the last thing that I think of, you know, but you want to make sure that like people are comfortable, that people are taken care of, you know, you want, when you think about Alzheimer's and like why we want to treat it, why we want to cure it, it shouldn't really have much to do with money. It should have to do with like, you want people to remember their own families, you know, um, you want people to like pass with dignity and independence and the fact that by the end of the disease, people don't have that. Um, that should, that's like the motivation for curing the disease. But hey, you got to mention the financial toll because that's capitalism, baby. Anyway, this took a turn that I didn't think it was going to take. Um, let's go to the second question. <laughs> um, so now we're going to talk about Alzheimer's disease from a neurobiological standpoint. And this is going to put uh, in context a little bit the discoveries that Dr. Alzheimer made about the brain tissue that he was studying and those key components that are still used for diagnosis today. So this is also being, this has also been discussed in the review paper by Deter and Dixon, that's linked below. Um, but in order to confirm an Alzheimer's disease diagnosis, um, to make sure that it, it is Alzheimer's and not another form of dementia, um, typically, they can use something like neuropathology or looking at the makeup of the brain tissue post-mortem, just like Dr. Alzheimer's, Dr. Alzheimer did, to make sure that it had those key proteins, that key component of the brain. Um, but that's not really helpful um, because you have to wait for the patient to die in order to look at their brain. Um, but more recent discoveries in medical technology um, include neuroimaging biomarkers. So we're able to image using positron emission tomography or PET imaging. So while the patient is still here, still with us, we're able to take pictures of their brain and look for these key characteristics, these key proteins that play a role in Alzheimer's disease in order to diagnose Alzheimer's um, in patients while they're still with us. Um, and these two key characteristics that I keep alluding to, but haven't told you, I know you're dying to know, um, are beta amyloid protein in the form of amyloid plaques and tau protein in the form of neurofibrillary tangles. So I'm going to talk a little bit about each of those, the beta amyloid and the tau, sort of how they propagate throughout the brain in Alzheimer's and sort of what role they play in the disease. So let's start with beta amyloid plaques. Beta amyloid, amyloid beta, tomato, tomato. I don't know if there really is a right way, and to be honest with you, I don't care. Um, I've seen both ways, and I've heard both ways, so I'm just going to go, you know, whichever way feels right in the moment. Um, <laughs> amyloid beta is a protein that builds up and collects in the brain in plaques. Uh, in people who have Alzheimer's disease. And there's a couple of different types of plaques. Two of the more common types of amyloid plaques are diffuse plaques and dense core plaques. Um, these plaques build up extracellularly, which means that it builds up in spaces around the neurons, around the other brain cells, um, and can also build up in the blood vessels in the brain. As Alzheimer's disease progresses, 
um, amyloid can spread throughout the brain in a pattern that has been characterized as Thal phases, which is named after Dr. Dietmar Thal, who characterized the pattern of Alzheimer's of amyloid progression in Alzheimer's disease brains. So amyloid plaques start building up in the neocortex, which is from front to back, all around your skull, essentially, um, well, inside of your skull, but it's like the outermost layer of your brain with all the wrinkles and the, the ridges. That's the neocortex. From the neocortex, it then spreads to the allocortex, which is a layer like underneath the neocortex. Um, and then it spreads to the subcortical regions like the striatum, which is made up of the caudate, the putamen, the nucleus accumbens. Those are the regions that are like sort of implicated in reward systems. Um, then it spreads to the brainstem. The brainstem connects the brain and the spinal cord. And it contains the midbrain, the pons, and the medulla oblongata, which regulates respiratory and cardiac functions. And then finally, um, very late stage, uh, the amyloid spreads to the cerebellum, which is in the lower back of your head where your skull and your neck meet. The cerebellum is responsible for movement, coordination, balance, things like that. So that's sort of the typical trajectory of the spread of amyloid throughout the brain in an Alzheimer's patient. It's important though to note that amyloid deposition can precede or come before symptoms, memory impairment, things like that, by up to decades, a decade or more. Like it happens way before we start noticing Alzheimer's in behavioral changes. So um, it, it takes a long time for this amyloid to spread throughout the brain and then have it affect somebody's behavior. The next protein is tau. Um, tau forms neurofibrillary tangles, which we're going to call the real NFTs. Okay, I know more recently, you know, in, in the world, in society, people have gotten real comfortable calling other things NFTs, but these were here first. So maybe you can go find another name for your, your tokens, your fungible, non-fungible tokens, all right? Because we only care about neurofibrillary tangles. In this house, don't even tell me about your tokens. I don't care. We care about neurofibrillary tangles made up of tau proteins in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's disease, okay? So tau is a protein that exists sort of normally in the brain. It's a very thin, stringy protein. In Alzheimer's, there are tau proteins that are hypophosphorylated, hyper phosphorylated, meaning that they typically have an extra phosphate group tagged onto it. And the only thing that that should mean to you is that now the tau protein doesn't look like it should. It changes the shape of the protein, which changes the way that the protein will act. And it does that by losing its normal function as a tau protein, but also gaining 
a toxic function because now that it has this extra phosphate group tagged onto it, the tau protein becomes sticky. I don't know if that's the right word, but it, they stick together, right? They form, they tangle together. They, they form these tangles, these neurofibrillary tangles, these NFTs, the real ones. And they bunch together and they hurt the environment that is surrounding it. It's, it creates a toxic environment. It creates an environment so toxic. Um, but no, really, it does. It, it, these NFTs, they, can, they typically collect inside of your brain cells, so they're intracellular, um, and they make the environment inside of the cell very toxic. It throws off the cell's balance and can kill our cells. Sort of like how the fake NFTs kill any conversation I have with someone in finance. Finance, I put in quotes, because I feel like NFTs aren't even real finance. You know, like when someone starts talking about NFTs, and you're just like, sorry, I have no clue what you're talking about, and also, I really don't care, so I have to go now. Bye. That's what the cell does. When the NFTs build up in the cell, they say, I don't care about this, I gotta go. And then they, they split. Um... That was a reach, I think. That was a reach of a, an analogy. But anyway, um, <laughs> so the NFTs, like I talked about how the amyloid spreads around the brain in a certain way, um, <clears throat> the NFTs also spread around the brain in a certain pattern. And we call this pattern BRAC staging. It's named after doctors Keiko and Ava Brack. There's six stages total. Um, but you can kind of characterize them into like early stages one and two, middle stages three and four, and late stages five and six. So the early stages one and two are called the transentorhinal stages. Um, this is what the review article classified them as. And it basically includes the inner allocortex and the inner temporal cortex area. Um, the inner temporal cortex area is very implicated in memory functions. Um, and it also, stages one and two, also includes uh, the thalamus region of the brain. So tau starts collecting in those regions of the brain. Next, it spreads to the middle stages, which are stages three and four. These are known as the limbic stages. Um, that includes like the hippocampus, which is responsible for me long-term memories. Um, as well as subcortical areas of the brain, like the amygdala, which is responsible for emotional regulation, um, as well as parts of the nucleus accumbens and the putamen. Um, and then the late stages, stages five and six, tau spreads towards the end of the disease progression. These are called the isocortical stages. Um, and this is basically when tau spreads to like the rest of the brain, not the whole brain, but a lot of other parts of the brain. Um, it spreads to major parts of the medial frontal cortex, the orbitofrontal cortex, um, the inferior temporal and occipital lobes, as well as the primary sensory cortex, which we've talked about before. It's sort of the line connecting your ears above the top of your head um, in your parietal cortex, as well as the motor cortex, which is in the back of your frontal cortex. 
Cortex, Cortex, Cortex. Start this episode over and play the Cortex drinking game. Guaranteed alcohol poisoning by 20 minutes in. I don't know how long we've been going, but okay. Um, actually, I did, I'm going to do a little self-promo because freaking why not? It's my gosh darn show. Um, I published a short review. My advisor and I published a short review last year. Um, that sort of talked about how Tau spreads. It's called, uh, actually I forget the exact title of it. I think it's Untangling the Relationship Between Microglia and Tau. If you Google Trends in Neurosciences and then Samantha Rosano, there should be an image there that kind of shows brains and like how throughout the different BRAC staging, Tau spreads throughout the brain. Um, if you're curious... You know, just if, if you want, if you have a second and you're bored and you're staring at your, you know, Google Chrome browser and you're like, what could I look up right now? Do that. <sighs> Guys, it's so hot. I'm literally sweating. I'm losing it. But anyway, <sighs> I'm going to take a drink. Stay hydrated. It's McFrickin' hot outside. You guys better drink water. Get those electrolytes back true too. Drink like Gatorade or whatever. I hate summer. I really do. Where was I? I was talking about Tao. I did my little self-promotion. So yeah. That sort of pattern is how Tao spreads during... Alzheimer's disease progression. Some studies have shown that, suggested that amyloid and tau kind of work together. It's this idea of the amyloid hypothesis that basically amyloid, the presence of amyloid drives tau deposition. So amyloid comes first and then tau comes along and propagates in a way that again is toxic to these cells. Remember that these tau NFTs are toxic. So when they build up in our cells at a high concentration, they kill our brain cells. And that causes neurodegeneration or loss of brain matter, um, atrophy. We can see atrophy in Alzheimer's and dementia patients on structural MRI scans. But the neurodegeneration follows a very similar pattern as the tau NFTs do. And this is kind of intuitive because like so does the loss of function, right? Remember I said that the early BRAC stages um, where the NFTs build up are like medial temporal areas, eventually the hippocampus. These are all areas that are important for working memory, short-term memory, long-term memory. And that's where we start to see the progression of the disease, right? First, it starts out most commonly of like really minor forgetfulness things. Did I tell you that already? Where did I put that thing? You know, little things. But as the disease progresses, it gets worse and worse. And then your long-term memory comes into play and you forget important information from your long-term memory. And then later stages of the disease as the tau is spreading to the other cortical regions of your brain, right? The motor and sensory cortices, the frontal cortex, where a lot of the executive function and the decision making is happening. 
as the disease progresses, we're also losing function in these regions. And it's because the tau that's spreading throughout our brain is killing our brain cells in those regions. And when we don't have functioning brain cells in those regions, we don't have that function anymore. Um, tau, like amyloid, can also come decades before we see um, any behavioral changes, any memory changes in patients. Um, so that's important to note as well. So yeah, hopefully that gives some information about what's going on from a neurobiological standpoint in Alzheimer's disease. Um, hopefully it sort of gives some perspective and some clarity as to why we lose the functions that we're losing, why we lose memory first and kind of goes from there. It's because our brain cells are dying because of the toxic tau, uh, toxic tau NFTs that are enabled by the amyloid plaques in the brain. Um, so both those two proteins play a very important role in um, the progression of Alzheimer's. Okay, so that was question two. Now let's go on to question number three, which is, is there a cure? Uh, well, <laughs> it depends on who you ask. Um, last year, just over a year ago, actually, I think it was the beginning of June 2021, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved aducanumab as a new drug for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. So what is this drug? How does it work? How does it help? Does it help? We're going to look into that using the data that's recently been published uh, from the clinical trial with this drug. So the study linked below that I'm going to be referencing here is by Dr. Bud Haverlein and colleagues. It summarizes two clinical trials. One was called Emerge and one was called Engage. Both of these trials were very similar, nearly identical in design. They assessed the effectiveness and the safety of aducanumab in people who had early stages of Alzheimer's disease. So they had mild cognitive impairment and uh, or mild Alzheimer's disease dementia. Um, there were over 1,600 participants in each of the studies that were used for this uh, analysis. So aducanumab, um, which I'm going to keep saying because it's very fun, is an antibody that specifically targets amyloid beta plaques. So it finds the beta amyloid, amyloid beta, tomato, tomato, in your brain, and it tags it and it signals it to get broken down and cleared from the brain, right? Like antibodies in our immune system tag something and break it down, destroy it, clear it. That's exactly what aducanumab is doing, but it's specifically targeting the beta amyloid protein in our brain. The drug is administered intravenously by infusion once every four weeks for a total of 76 weeks, about a year and a half, which comes out to 20 total doses. 
Um, the study was an RCT, which you might have heard of. That stands for Randomized Controlled Trial. So in these types of studies, participants are randomly assigned to groups where one of those groups is a control group that doesn't receive the intervention. And then we can use that group, the control group, to compare the other experimental groups too. And the assigning of the uh, participants into each group is random. In this paper, they split the participants, and in the studies, I guess, they split the participants up into three groups. So one group received a placebo infusion, where they just got saline infusion once every four weeks for a year and a half. The second group got a low dose of aducanumab once every four weeks, and then the third group got a higher dose of aducanumab once every four weeks. Throughout the trial, um, or I should say at different points in the trial, they collected a couple of measures, uh, including cognitive testing and imaging. And they did it at multiple time points. So first, they started, or they took measurements of cognitive testing and of imaging at baseline before they started receiving the drug. Then they took these measurements once during the middle of the trial, about six months into the trial, um, and then they took these measurements again at the end of the trial, at the end of a year and a half, in all three groups, placebo, low dose, high dose. So the cognitive testing measures that they took, they had a primary clinical outcome endpoint that was focused on the CDR, or the Clinical Dementia Rating Scale. This is a scaled from zero to three, where if you take this test and you get a score of a zero, you are not impaired. If you get a score of 0 0.5, it means that there is possible cognitive impairment. Um, if you get a score of a one, it is mild cognitive impairment, two is moderate, and three is severe cognitive impairment. Um, so as I mentioned earlier on, the, the participants in the study had uh, mild cognitive impairment and mild AD. So mild cognitive impairment is when they score one on the CDR, the clinical dementia rating scale. Um, they also did a couple of other cognitive tests, including the mini mental state examination or the MMSE, which is another similar, it's just like a questionnaire test that they take. Um, and that one scored from zero to 30, but the higher you get on the MMSE, the more normal your uh, cognitive abilities are. So from 25 to 30 score is a normal cognitive ability. 20 to 25 is mild cognitive impairment. 10 to 20 is moderate and zero to 10 is severe cognitive impairment. So that's the cognitive testing portion of the measurements that they took. So in addition to the cognitive testing, as I mentioned, they also got um, imaging done at baseline, at six months, and at the end of the trial. So the imaging that I'm going to talk about today is using positron emission tomography, which I kind of talked about at the beginning, but basically instead of tissue structure, positron emission tomography or PET imaging tells us more about the pathophysiology of the tissue, what the tissue is made up of. So with this technology, we can image specific proteins 
like amyloid, to see where across the brain the protein is and quantify about approximately how much protein there is in the brain. Um, so they did amyloid PET scans at those three time points and measured how much amyloid was in the brain at each of those time points and then measured the change from baseline for each of those measures. I also should have mentioned that they reported the change in outcome, the change in measures for the cognitive tests as well. So they did cognitive testing, baseline, six months, end of trial, and then what they reported was the change um, from baseline. Because that's, again, that's kind of what we really care about, right? When we're looking for a treatment, like we want to see how does it change from when they didn't have the treatment. Um, so that's sort of what they share in the results section, which we're going to get to right now. <laughs> um, so again, remember that these were like two separate uh, trials, two different studies. Um, they had the same design, but they had different participants, so different data, essentially. Um, but overall, for the imaging results, the results between Emerge and Engage were very similar. So over the course of the year and a half trial, participants in the placebo group who received no drug um, saw between a 1% and 4% increase in amyloid in the brain on average between the two groups um, based on the PET measures of amyloid PET. And that was in the placebo group. In contrast, the group that received a high dose of aducanumab saw between a 59 to 71% decrease on average in beta amyloid levels in the brain by the end of the trial using the amyloid PET. So the people who didn't get the drug had barely really any change, maybe a slight increase in the amount of amyloid in their brain, right? The people who did get the drug saw up to a 71% decrease and amyloid in their brain. That's a, that's a huge difference. That's like mind-blowingly different, right? So with that dramatic difference between baseline and 76 week in the drug group, and then also the dramatic difference between the drug group and the placebo at 76 weeks, it's pretty fair to conclude with a lot of confidence that aducanumab definitely targets, destroys, and removes the amyloid from the brain, right? The people that had aducanumab had really drastic decreases after a year and a half. The people that didn't have aducanumab saw no decrease and even a little bit of an increase, potentially. 1%, I mean, that's barely anything, but you know what I mean. They didn't have a decrease, and that's the point, right? So looking at that, you're like, wow, this... This antibody does exactly what it's supposed to do. That is so exciting that it clears the amyloid from the brain. That's huge, right? Because we know that amyloid plays such a huge role in Alzheimer's. So that was from the imaging results, which were like so mind-blowingly cool and exciting. But now let's get to the cognitive testing results. And you can see, if you look at the link, the paper, the full manuscript, you can see the plots of the change in the PET measures um, 
in graphs for the eMERGE study and for the ENGAGE study. These plots are not shown in the main manuscript for the cognitive testing results. They do, they do report the results of the cognitive tests, but they don't show it in these really amazing, beautiful looking plots. Um, and that's because of the quality of the results, um, which unfortunately are not as exciting for the cognitive results as they were for the imaging results. So uh, you can still find these plots though, if you're interested and if you care, which maybe you do, maybe you don't. If you go to the paper, you can download the supplement to see the plots for the CDR, the MMSE, and like the other cognitive tests that they do. Um, the imaging results were very similar between the two studies. For the cognitive testing results, they were not similar. Um, so in the eMERGE study, they found that both the low and high dose aducanumab groups had significantly lower changes in CDR than in the placebo group. So in other words, the CDR increased more when people got the placebo and the CDR increased less when people got the drug. So CDR, again, was the zero to three scale where zero was no impairment and three was severe cognitive impairment. So as the level, as the score gets higher, that infers, that means that there's more cognitive impairment happening, right? So basically the people who did not get the drug, the people who got the placebo had more um, dramatic increases in this, their CDR score, meaning that they had more impairment over the course of the year and a half compared to the people who got the drug. And that was backed up by statistical testing. They found a statistically significant difference between the scores of people who had um, drug versus, I should say, they had a statistically significant difference in the change in score between people who had the drug and people who did not have the drug. Um, but this was not seen for the ENGAGE study, where the change in CDR scores from baseline were very similar across groups. It was very hard to differentiate the placebo from the drug groups. So in other words, eMERGE showed that the cognitive decline in patients who received aducanumab was slower than those who received the placebo, but ENGAGE could not make that same conclusion with the data that they had collected. Um, one other thing that the paper mentioned is just talking about adverse events, right? Because in clinical trials, we're looking for effectiveness, but we're also looking for safety. Um, and they reported adverse events. The most common were um, headache. They also mentioned dizziness, falls, um, which can be pretty severe when people are elderly um, or older. Um, I don't really know too much about like the safety analysis side of things, but um, they did determine that the drug was safe and the FDA did um, recommend it last year. So clearly it's not causing harm to people, um, at least not in comparison to the potential benefit. Um, so with this evidence, 
the research shows that aducanumab definitely reduces beta amyloid in the brains of AD patients, and it maybe, potentially, possibly can slow but not stop or not reverse the cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease patients. Um, and because of these results, the FDA approved this drug for use in Alzheimer's disease. But in this paper, the authors note that further evaluation of the efficacy of aducanumab is going to be studied in a forthcoming clinical trial. So a few things that I wrote down as like considerations um, before we wrap up and sort of the conclusions. Um, this drug, aducanumab, focuses on uh, beta amyloid, right? It, it finds the amyloid in the brain, it breaks it down, it clears it. But we know that amyloid and tau work together, right, in a sense, to cause the progression of Alzheimer's disease. So there's still tau that's doing a lot of the damage that leads directly to the neurodegeneration, that leads to the loss of function and the cognitive impairment that we see in Alzheimer's. So using amyloid as the only target for an AD therapy might not be the best solution. It might not be the one that's going to cure it all, right? Um, also, another thing that I highlighted a little bit earlier was that we see amyloid in the brains of 80 patients up to decades before we see any sign of cognitive or behavioral changes. So although the current study doesn't show, I mean, a great effect in cognition, maybe if we can screen for amyloid deposition earlier on in life, uh, especially if we know that people have a family history or might have some genetic tie to Alzheimer's, if we can screen for amyloid earlier and we see that they have amyloid starting to build up in the brain before we notice that they have any cognitive impairments, we can maybe give them this drug to clear out the amyloid to slow down, maybe even stop in the tracks the, the progression of the disease that might come after. Um... But yeah, this drug is FDA approved. Some doctors are prescribing it um, because they think that the benefits outweigh the risks. The benefit of potentially slowing down the um, regression and of cognitive ability uh, is worth the you know worth uh, worth a shot. Some doctors will not prescribe it because they're not at all impressed with the. The, the clinical outcomes, the more behavioral outcomes. They think, what's the point? Um, you know, they're not very impressed with the cognitive uh, aspect of the results of the study. Um, but the brain is a really tricky thing because a lot of other organs in our body have the ability to regenerate, right? Like if we fall and scrape our knee, in two weeks we're going to have new skin, that covers our knee, right? Our blood cells regenerate, right? If I donate blood in seven days, all the blood that I lost will be regenerated. Um, same thing with bone cells. Bone cells uh, are reabsorbed and remade constantly. Um, the brain does not do that. Our neurons 
are, we're like born with 90 something percent of the neurons that we're going to have for the rest of our lives. And uh, they don't, if they die, they don't regrow, they don't regenerate. So that's something that really is unfortunate, especially when we're talking about neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, where we see that brain cells are dying. Once they die, we can't regenerate them. We can't bring them back. We can't plant new ones. So I think that sort of stresses the importance of early detection. And sort of like I said earlier, if we know that a person is at risk of developing Alzheimer's, if we can test them for amyloid deposition when they're 40, when they're 50, you know, and if we start to see amyloid in the brain, we can give them this amyloid antibody in aducanumab and hopefully slow down or prevent the progression of Alzheimer's. Um, Anyways, I'm ranting. I'm sorry. I just, it's very, I love the brain. I think it's so interesting, but it's also just very devastating sometimes when you think about it. Dang, that's, I didn't want to end the spring semester on a sad note. I guess it's, it's promising though, right? That like, there is a drug out there, maybe. <laughs> um... But yeah, there's still a lot of work to be done, but work is being done. And I say that as someone who works in an Alzheimer's disease lab, that work is being done. We're trying to figure it out. And, you, you know, don't say that we're not trying, because we are. And uh, maybe that'll be a more hopeful way to close out the episode, is we're working on it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so in today's episode, hopefully we learned a little bit about Alzheimer's, the risk factors, the progression of the disease, the neurobiology of the disease, and the current state of treatments. Um, but yeah, that's all for this episode. Please don't forget to follow, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at SamSplainingSci. Connect with me there and ask questions if you'd like. You can also submit your questions at samsplainingscience.com ask. So if you have anything you want Sam explain to you, ask away. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode, the final episode of the spring semester. Um, after a one-week break, Sam Explaining Science will return for summer school. So I can't wait to see you there. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit, and I will talk to you in July. Bye.